0: Se ginà tuo
1: yo kana
0: Kisambe na tambwe mwamba tuo yo kana Majungu binonamenge tuo yo
1: kana
0: Mama molonga Justine kasa bu
2: of the media. I suppose our youngsters would say cornball or square. And now, CBN Radio brings you...
1: the broadcast uh, uh, media can do. You give them a sense of flavor.
2: It's all vegetable. It's digestible. It's delicious and nutritious. life sized and ready to eat. It's made with real egg formula.
1: And here's a nice looking record package in from New York. WCBN.
0: America's ace of the airwaves. This instrument is good for nothing
1: but to entertain,
2: amuse, and insulate. And we will soon see that the whole struggle is lost. And believing that radio had the responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia. Oh!
1: WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, WCBN-FM, 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 Ann Arbor, WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, Arbor. WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor.
0: A very pleasant, peaceful feeling. You relax deeper and deeper. Each downward count of my voice, 10... Relaxing deeper, 9. Letting the body gently begin to sink deeper, 8. 8.3. Yes, it's like a a push-button radio, you see.
2: 24 hours a day. Whether you like it or not. Oh, we're limited to a 500-mile radius now, but we're working to extend that limit.
0: If you got leaving on your mind
3: Good afternoon. I'm T Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And today, I'm very pleased to have J.A. Jance in the studio with me. Um, Welcome, J.A. Welcome to Living Writers in Ann Arbor.
4: <laughs> Thank you. It was a bit of a challenge getting here since New York gave me the wrong address. <laughs> here we are, just in time.
3: Thanks, Megan, for sending the books. <laughs> for I know, it was well, it made it very exciting up to the last minute. Yes, it, yeah. it did.
4: The... But I, w- <clears throat> I was glad to hear that Patsy Cline melody. I grew up in Bisbee, Arizona. Yes. And our local radio station K-S-U-N, was long on Patsy Cline and Gentleman Jim Reeves and um, country music, and very short on <laughs> anything <laughs> classical. So I came to Mozart much later in life. But, so this is what you cut your teeth on growing up. Well, and Patsy Cline has a way of expressing utter heartbreak. With her voice, and I've I've lived some life, some years of utter heartbreak, and that one, boy, sometimes, if you're going to go, you really need to do it because if you stay longer, it's going to get a lot worse.
3: <laughs> right, right. It's hard to know, though. Yeah,
4: <laughs> particularly when you're in the middle of the weeds. Yes, it is.
3: It is, but Patsy Klein. So it sounds like she, Patsy got you through some hard times, and, um, and maybe some of those hard times inform your characters' lives as well. Writers are recyclers.
4: And, and everything, thieves. Everything, everything is usable. And sometimes the bad things are more usable than the good things. For instance, I spent 18 years of my life With a man who died of chronic alcoholism at age 42, a year and a half after I divorced him. And I wrote my way through those times. I wrote poetry under the dark of night and finally found a way to get out of it. I finally, my first husband showed up at my six year old son's T ball game so drunk that when the game was over, he crawled on his hands and knees from the bleachers back to the car. And after 18 years, I finally said, okay, 18 years of loving him hasn't fixed him. I need to do something to save my children and save myself. And so I got a divorce. And then he began showing up every Saturday saying, oh, you said in sickness or in in health, and this is sickness, take me back. But he had already been hospitalized nine times for chronic alcoholism. And so I got a divorce and moved to Seattle and started living my dream of writing. I hadn't really made... I had always wanted to be a writer, but I hadn't made any headway. I started writing my first novel in 1982. And then in December... He, he got sick. He went into DT's in Phoenix and died a couple months later. And when I went to get out the pieces of paper you need to present after someone dies, I found all the pieces of poetry I had written and hidden away because he told me in 1968 there's only going to be one writer in our family. So I didn't show him the poetry at the time I was writing it.
3: And you had written a children's book too, and sent it off, well, and had had a good reception from a, a yes. potential and
4: publisher. Th- and that was that that was that was a non-starter. And so, uh, so the but poetry n- the poetry was published in nineteen eighty four, and it came out uh, it came out in just a pamphlet with the poetry in nineteen eighty five. I did a poetry reading of the, of that book at a widowed retreat and met the man who has been my husband Bill, for the past 29 who's years. Bill, sitting yes. here with
3: text behind the <laughs> glass. We're now waving to Bill and Tex. Yeah. And, that, and you read some of your poems then, and, and Bill understood something well, about what the poems were actually, saying and that he connected to it.
4: No, he did or not no. come to the poetry reading. We both were at the same retreat. He did not come to the poetry reading. But that evening, after the poetry reading, which he ditched (laughs) to walk on the beach, we discovered that our first spouses had died on the same day of the year, two years apart. They both died a few minutes before midnight on New Year's Eve. And that was what caused us to strike up that first conversation. But the poetry has now been reissued by HarperCollins. And now, instead of just the poetry there are little essays that tell what was going on in my life when I
3: wrote each of those. So why did you choose to do that, JA? What was the how did that transform the book from the original as you call it, you said it was, you know, a small like a pamphlet of these poems? So why why were the small essays? How did it feed them?
4: Well, what what the essays do? If you go to a poetry reading, the poet can say, "Oh, well this happened and I wrote that." And so by putting the essays in People who are reading the book alone in their own place can have an idea of what inspired each of the poetry, each piece of poetry.
3: And uh, it is working as a memoir, then. As, as, uh, it's, it's my
4: it's my autobiography in prose and poetry. And I know poetry petrifies people, but uh, some people anyway. But the Title poem goes like this I have touched the fire. It burned me, but I knew I lived. It seared me, but it made me whole. He called me. I went gladly, though I saw the rocks, fell laughing through the singeing air. I have known the fire. I'll live with nothing rather than with less. The flame is out. There's nothing left but ash. And, and I had to be to the point where there was nothing left but ash, before I could walk away, which was exactly what I had to do.
3: And somehow the writing, I think, was a way of sh- discovering to your, like sh- t- talking with yourself, maybe through something and recognizing that you were there.
4: Well, that's the thing,
3: writers write,
1: and yes. when I was
4: <laughs> when I was writing those poems. I thought I was being true to my art. But when I read through them, after he died, I could see that I had been using words to grapple with the central issues of my life. The one poem that I wrote that says, Do you love me? And it ends with the woman saying, Can I, can I give more to myself and less to him whose life is welded to mine by a coat of living chain mail? The answers are too staggering to consider. I'm going to bed, she says, knowing with sinking heart that he will follow. I wrote that long before either one of my children was born. I, the creative part of me <laughs> knew it was all over long before I was willing <laughs> to give up.
3: <laughs> and that's some, that's sort of the essence when we're writing, to discover. Sometimes we don't know what's, what's there until it is on the page, or maybe even years later in some instances. Well, yes, when I started writing the first Beaumont book... Which, so, so that was around 1983, is the first novel, right? That, that was, was, a, and uh, it was Until Proven Guilty? And it was published in 85.
4: And Beaumont, my male Seattle homicide cop, did the same kind of drinking that I had lived with all those years. And, but I failed to notice it. Four four books later, somebody came up to me at a signing and he said, you know, Beau drinks every day, he's got a drink of choice, he's, it's starting to interfere with his work. Does J.P. Beaumont have a problem? I said, you know, these are books. <laughs> but clearly, that had been written subconsciously into the background of the books. And that's why Beau went to treatment a few years later. And there are more books with him sober now and than so there were can, of him drinking.
3: And he, yes, what, and he, he made it to Second Watch, the July 2014 release with William Morrow. So he made it this far, right? Yes,
4: he's he's okay, yep.
3: <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back. Um, today on the program, J.A. Jance is here. Um, we have books on the table, Remains of Innocence, Second Watch, Um the, after the Fire. After the Fire. The one that J.A. just um, quoted from memory, her poem, After the Fire. And then also a novella, The Old Blue Line. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We'll be right back.
0: I learned the truth at 17. That love was meant for beauty queen. High school girls with clear skin smiles Who married young and then retired The Valentines I never knew The Friday night charades of youth Were spent on one more beautiful At seventeen I learned Faces lacking in the social graces desperately remained at home, inventing lovers on the phone who called to say, Come dance with me. The murmured vague obscenities, it isn't all it seems.
3: If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got text engineering behind the glass. And today, J.A. Jance is here um, picking the songs. We've got our books on the table. All three of the books are um, out in 2014. You're so prolific. But let's talk about the music before the, the, <laughs> the words, all the words. Um, you were singing, J.A., and you picked these songs for the show today. So everything we hear today will be ones you've chosen. This song seems to have also kind of runs deep for you. Well, I was six feet tall by the time I was in seventh grade.
4: I wore thick glasses. I was smart. If that's not a recipe for social failure in high school and junior high, I don't know what is.
3: Especially small town. Maybe if you'd been in New York City, you would have been swept (sighs) up by a modeling agency. And so, in the years
4: before I divorced my husband I was in the insurance business in Phoenix and driving from appointment to appointment with music playing on my cassette player in my 73 osmobile cutlass that my First husband said I never should have bought and would never be able to pay for it.
3: Was that an eight-cylinder?
4: Yes, it was.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Those things are fast. They can move. Those babies can move. <laughs> but
4: Janice Ian's music was playing, and I I can actually go through and sing all of the songs in order because they are, they're in my head in the way they were on the tape. As soon as I heard at 17, I thought, boy, she and I have walked in the same moccasins. But then I found out Janice Ian is only four foot ten. And so walking in the same moccasins just wouldn't do. But still, that that song about being a social outcast when you're going through those tough years, that stayed with me. And so for years, I would end my presentations by singing that song. Six years ago, when Bill was having dual knee replacement surgery.
3: Oh, like-
4: Everything is usable, like, yes.
3: our character in Second Watch, J.P. Beaumont.
4: Uh, I was, he was being moved from the hospital to rehab, and I had promised to go to Boise for, readers, uh, for a writers conference to be the keynote speaker. I tried to back out, and my daughter said, no, mom, you said you would go, we'll take care of dad, you go. So I went. On Saturday at noon, I gave my speech. I ended with at 17. And on the next day, that evening, on Sunday evening, I opened my email and there was an email from Janice Ian because a woman who was my fan and her fan was in the audience in Boise. And since then, Janice and I have become friends. She's Done a couple living room concerts at our house, and a year ago I was able to sing her song with her as a duet. I mean, who doesn't dream of being able to do something with the person who's always been the star in your firmament?
3: Yeah, and got you through things, and
4: yeah. But she says that I sing her song in the key of R. And so doing a duet is sort of tough. But another song of hers that, I, that I, I've been singing on this round of talks is, in, The days are okay, I watch the TV in the afternoon. If I get lonely, the sound of other voices, other rooms are near to me. Not afraid. And that song was such an essence of loneliness and heartbreak. And that was where I was in the, the late 70s and early 80s. And the idea that I would go from that to have, being able to write, which I always wanted to do, to be able to, to travel, have kids, grandkids, all of this stuff is such a miracle to me. And I am incredibly grateful.
3: Well, it seems like for that time, it's a a, a wellspring for you, um, something that does fuel you, maybe to appreciate or to make sure that you are writing. As much as because you you are writing a lot, J. A. and 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 well, you said even when you were selling the insurance, I think I read on your your website that you would get up and write from like yes. four to seven in the morning, I, I and had, then take the kids to school or go sell insurance. As, I
4: as a single parent with two little kids, no child support, in Seattle in nineteen. 19- Eighty-one and Those were and tough years
3: there. That was before there was money in the city. Uh, it's like Boeing was struggling. Yeah, but those
4: those three hours in the morning, from four to seven, were all I had to devote to me. Everything else was kids, work, kids, bed.
3: <laughs> no social life. <laughs> but you had the music. I had the music. I did have the music and and then the stories on the page so how how did this first character j p beaumont it's he would be it seems like you had that would be a friend this this person that you've lived over the years with, so much so that recently your son was like, Well, why don't you write a prequel <laughs> or so like you've lived with this character right? Well, our whole family has lived with him <laughs> I,
4: actually we. We used to go to this little Mexican restaurant in uh, Redmond. And one day I was on a TV show, an afternoon TV show, and when we went in the next time, they were they were just overjoyed to see me and they said, "We saw you on TV." <laughs> and we were so worried because you'd come here and you would talk about killing people. And we, they, <laughs> they thought I was running Murder Incorporated. <laughs> So they were sort of pleased to know that I was a mystery writer instead of a killer.
3: (laughs) And uh, you have such good manners, so kind, and
4: then this like,
3: oh, no, that's hilarious.
4: It is. It is.
3: So, yeah, what is it like then? What drew you to then writing the suspense and and to to dwell in the the, the lives of cops, detectives, murders?
4: I I always loved mysteries. I always read mysteries. And so it was perfectly natural that mysteries were what... I would write.
3: It's just like Bashal Hammett, Raymond Chandler, Agatha Christie, like that a- Well, and I
4: read I I loved uh, John D MacDonald, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I tried I, I the first book I wrote which never sold to anybody was 1400 pages long because I wasn't allowed in the creative writing program at the University of Arizona in 1964 because I was a girl. My first husband, bless his heart, was allowed in the creative writing program that was closed to me. It's a bad idea to make mystery writers mad. In my first hardback, Hour of the Hunter, the main character is a woman named Diana Ladd. She's a teacher on an Indian reservation But she really wants to be a writer. Her husband... And you were a librarian, right? I was a school librarian. Her husband is dead at the beginning of the book. And the crazed killer in Hour of the Hundred turns out to be a former professor of creative writing from the University of Arizona. So do not make us mad. But um Beau- so but
3: so did you so is that something then by the si- sounds of it JA that's something you kind of decided in that one you were like I'm not revenge but you were like I know who a good bad guy can be for this one that, and then it, it's it right it's not something where they were a character in the firmament of the plot and then no, you just realized they did it you no, knew it
4: no okay. okay he was he was bad from the moment <laughs> he showed up <laughs> but bo so when that first book, uh, that, that's my first hard book back. That was not the, and that's Hour of the Hunter. But that's not the first book I wrote. The first one I wrote was on-the-job training. And I needed to know how to do dialogue. I needed to know how to do pacing. I needed to know all of that stuff. And in writing that 1,400-page opus, I learned that. When it didn't sell, because it was too long, and the editor said the stuff that was real was, the stuff that was fiction was fine, but the stuff that was real was unbelievable and would never happen. Uh, My agent suggested that I write something that was totally fiction. So I started trying to write... How did you get an agent? Like, how did you know what to do without, like, did you
3: just, what did you do? I
4: I I was referred to an agent.
3: And how she was like referred i I
4: paid a woman who taught writing in Seattle two hundred and fifty dollars hard-earned dollars at that time right, right. to evaluate my manuscript. She uh, referred me to an editor who returned the manuscript by return mail, by the way, and to an agent who had recently moved to Seattle. I went to see the agent with my manuscript in a box. And she looked at the box and said, this is your first book. And I said, yes. She said, it's too long. She never even touched the right. box. Oh, dear. She said, cut it in half. So I went home and I did. I took out 600, 700 pages. And so then you were, you were learning the art of revision then. <laughs> and so I took it back to her and she, she tried to sell it. I think a lot of beginning writers, if they happen to luck into an agent the first time, If they can't sell their first manuscript, the writers fire the agent. I fired the manuscript and kept the agent, and she's still my agent more than 50 books later. So, uh, she suggested that I try to write something that was entirely fictional. I wrote, I spent six months trying to write Until Proven Guilty through the wrong point of view, and then... When my kids went on spring break, I thought, okay, I'll try writing this through the detective's point of view. And I wrote those first words. She might have been a cute kid once. That was hard to tell now. She was dead. And there I was at the crime scene with Bo, seeing the crime scene through Bo's eyes, hearing his thoughts, walking in his shoes. And he and I have been together
3: as author and character for more than 30 years. So that's what happened. We're going to take a short break and then let's pick up from there, JA. You've got Living Writers I'm T Hetzel today on the program. JA Jance is here. Remains of Innocence, Second Watch, The Old Blue Line After the Fire. These are the books on the table. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back you've got living Raiders i'm t Hetzel today j a Jantz is here in the studio um j a you've been on a tour you said three weeks now right and heading home on Friday
4: I'm going to burn these clothes when we get home. that's correct.
3: <laughs> 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 I was like do you are you traveling light then so not light enough <laughs> um well when, at, before the break JA you were you're talking about how you you literally really met JP Beaumont, um, when you heard his voice, when that's what came to you, really, or his interior? I heard his
4: interior dialogue at the crime scene for that murdered child at the beginning of Until Proven Guilty.
3: How did you know it was the wrong perspective before that? Because the book wouldn't go anywhere. What does that mean when you're saying that for a mystery? Because to to me, it seems like you've charted out, you've made some plot uh, points or no? no, no?
4: No, 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 no. I usually start with somebody dead. And then I try to figure out who did it and how come. I do not outline. I do not do storyboards. I don't do any of that stuff. I just, I follow the story where it goes. And so I'd been trying to write this story, and it just, I had the wrong point of view. Once I had the right point of view, I could write the book. I wrote 35,000 words by hand in five days, and I had blisters. That was before I bought a computer. But... <clears throat> once, once I met Bo, I understood him completely. And this morning, I received an email from a guy who said he had read a couple of my books over the years, but he just now read Until Proven Guilty, and now he wants to read them all in order. And What's amazing to me is that that story, Until Proven Guilty, still 30 years after I wrote it, still has the power has to, legs. Bring, to bring new readers in. And if you see Bo as he was in that book, and as he was in uh, Second Watch, Second Watch, it's the same guy.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it's the seamless. same guy. It's believable, like you know, it's and, this this person. And he's he's changed over the years.
4: I've some of the changes surprised me. Which uh, ones? Well, I never expected that he was going to fall for Mel. That was a surprise to me. They just didn't <laughs> seem to click, and then they, they did. <laughs>
3: they seemed so close in Second Watch. Yes, like a, they are a, a real
4: pair. But he he went. He had some really unfortunate experiences with partners. And with he Karen,
3: was, right? He and then was good with Anne, but bad with Karen. No, I mean with
4: partners. Oh at work. And so when they tried to put him together with Mel as a partner in an earlier book, he wasn't having any of it. And of course that's the problem with Delilah in this book, because once once again and Bo feels responsible when things go wrong. He didn't pull the trigger on Delilah, but he felt responsible for what happened to him, to to her.
3: But it did, in a way, I was thinking, Delilah, why are you going over there tonight? You know, because he was like, "Don't go, don't go in the basement. <laughs> yeah, don't. <laughs> yeah, go. yeah, or just don't. Yeah, don't go over to the guy who we know is drinking heavily and we're <laughs> suspecting. Yeah." Yeah, but then, but then I think in the in the story itself, then you try to answer. I think answer that question where you are like, because then JP keeps thinking it through, and he's like, "But if somebody was to tell me to wait till the next day, and I was hot on that, I would just go, you know." So,
4: well, the the really remarkable thing about Second Watch is, I think, my taking a guy I grew up with in Bisbee, Arizona. Yes, Leonard Douglas Leonard D- Davis. Douglas Davis this this guy everybody in town looked up to he was so he was such a remarkable young man
3: you were in the same class no you, i was you a, were a sophomore and he I was, was in, a, a well senior? we were or, we
4: were yes we were in the same latin, second year latin class but as far as high school was concerned he was older. a year ahead of me so he graduated as class valedictorian he went from bisbee to west point west point to ranger school Ranger School to Vietnam, where he died on the 2nd of August of 1966, weeks before his 23rd birthday. Through my books, I became acquainted with a woman named Bonnie Abney, who was engaged to Mary Doug when he died. And when I decided to write a prequel, I thought, well, what if... Doug would have been a year older than both. What if they met and interacted in Vietnam and so i I called Bonnie because we'd been friends for almost friends for almost twenty years by then, and she was the only one left left to ask and so she helped me with the background of the book by giving me the letters of condolence that came to her and the the things that were written into the congressional record about Doug's heroism in that final firefight.
3: And did she know about the Ace of Spades and the the cards that they used? She knew about the Ace of Spades. She knew about all of that.
4: And so in the book, you meet Bo as he is now, 30 years into my writing about him. And he's on his way to the hospital to have his knees replaced. (laughs) Like Bill. We all know where that came from. (laughs) And when Bill had his knees replaced, and he was on narcotics, (laughs) he had these very vivid dreams. So Bo has vivid dreams, too. And the first one is Monica Wellington, the first case he ever worked as a detective one that was
3: never solved. Which is, I think, a great um, choice to use because it just it makes sense that that would be the one that would that surface. Him. And, but
4: then that sh- Monica shows up in the recovery room. And then, when he's in his own room, he wakes up, or at least he thinks he does. And here's this guy in Vietnam era fatigues looking out the east-facing window at Swedish Hospital at the Space Needle, which is in the wrong direction. And when he comes walking over, then this guy comes walking over to Bo, and Bo recognizes him as Lenny D., his commanding officer in Vietnam. And Doug says to him, what are you in here for? And Bo says, I'm having my knees replaced. And Doug says, they can do that now? And then he says, what have you done with your life? Bo said, well, most of the time I've been a a cop and a homicide investigator. Doug said, do you have a family? Bo says, third time's the charm. I'm married. I've got a couple of kids, a couple of grandkids. Doug said, I had a girl once. I don't know if I ever told her how much she meant to me. So suddenly... Beaumont has a mission, because all those years ago, Doug was the guy who saved his life. And when he came back, he never reached out to Bonnie, because... Well, he was closed down from the war, and emotionally... Doug died, and Beau didn't. And he's felt this terrible burden ever since. And so that view of Doug Launches him off on uh, on a search for Bonnie, and
3: of course he finds her. But and you you mentioned having um when going finding seeing a body, and then going from there. It's like who did it, right? But then in second watch, there's layers. Of things that are happening in in these dreams that are or dreams or hallucinations from the narcotics Um, when you were drafting this J.A. just to get a sense of it is it something where um, Monica Wellington was the first as you're drafting this out she did come to the hospital room first and then um, Doug or Lenny D. came next or is it something that you're writing these pieces and then you're sort of rearranging them and no
4: I am not a rearranger I write books from beginning to end. Monica showed up first. Doug showed up next. The the thing that's interesting, there's a picture of Doug in printed in that book. And that's a picture that was taken in Vietnam by one of his fellow West Point classmates. And it wasn't until we were putting the finishing touches on this book that that classmate, went down to his basement found that photo and sent it to bonnie i'll never forget i opened my email and gradually that picture unfolded you know, it it was a big file and it took a long time to load and it was like but the thing that just blew my mind was that was how i envisioned him when i was writing that scene exactly with that, that those
3: very uh, fatigues. So what do you think about that? Like this connection to it, or the power of the imagination, or, or the research? I, been, like what? I
4: felt like there was divine guidance. Through talking about this book, I met a guy named Michael Reagan of the Fallen Heroes Project. And Michael Reagan is a Vietnam vet, a Marine, who has spent the last 10 years of his life making portraits of fallen heroes for Gold Star families. And he does them for free. And he's been, so for years, he was entirely focused on the war on terror. And then I showed up with that picture of Doug and asked him to do a a pencil portrait of Doug- For Bonnie? For Bonnie. and. We, Bill and I went to Bisbee High School, got them to retire their flag, and we gave Bonnie a real flag, and we gave her the flag and the Michael Reagan portrait at the same time. Because she was the girlfriend back then. She didn't get any of the official
3: attention. So... Although she was left with the loss of it her whole life.
4: So then Bonnie and I were out on tour with this book. And as a result of this book, seven other people received a portrait. Portraits of their lost people. Now two two weeks ago. And this ago, is second watch. That's this the book second that you're referring watch. to. Two weeks ago. On the second of August, forty-eight years after Doug's death, the
3: anniversary, yeah,
4: we were in Chehalis, Washington, for a moving wall celebration, and seated on the stage were Bonnie Abney, J. E. Jans, and Michael Reagan together, and he presented two Vietnam era fallen heroes and promised another one at that event, and I was thinking, here is Bonnie. Among these people who lost the same kind suffered the same kind of loss she did. And I thought this is a miracle for all of us. And Michael Reagan told me later that the journey he's been on since getting involved with Doug's portrait and Second Watch has been a healing journey for him too.
3: Was he in Vietnam? Mm-hmm. And that, and you mentioned in your book, because uh, J.P. The, the your main character, he's also obviously a Vietnam vet. And that when people came back, they were called baby killers and sort of like the, the terrible, like if, if it was the walking wounded. The, yes. So this, this is something that's healing for everyone. And, and it's it taken is. this long, this much time.
4: But that's what makes me think there was a bit of divine guidance going on in that whole writing process.
3: Let's take a short break and we'll be back. Today on Living Writers, J.A. Jance is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
5: I've been down
3: living writers i'm t hetzel today j.a jance is here um with the musical choices that was great today everyone is a woman (laughs) uh, today we stand together as women
4: but (laughs) helen reddy was one of those voices in the same wilderness when i was going through that dark time and i actually i did burn a bra once I'm I'm one of the few people who actually burned a bra. But it was a nursing So it's not a myth. <laughs> but it was a nursing bra that I tossed on the barbecue grill after I cooked dinner, which made it sort of a mixed metaphor. <laughs> so you grilled a bra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and because it was a nursing bra, it didn't really flame up. The the inside lining sort of just charred. And so it was it was a failure as
3: it didn't feel cathartic or Yes,
4: it didn't it didn't free me.
3: <laughs> but it makes for a damn good story though. I burned a brat Well, I grilled. I grilled an old <laughs> no. But 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 that song is like it's empowering. It and, Well, it is,
4: know. and it's part of I hate it when people say informs your writing. But that's part of what goes on in the Joanna Brady books. I spent 10 years in the life insurance business at a time when women weren't readily accepted in the life insurance business. And Joanna's best friend, Marianne Macalier, is a Methodist pastor. And women weren't exactly welcomed into those ranks at that time either. And so I, I know what it's like to be a woman in a predominantly male job. And so I've used some of those things
3: in the background of Joanna Brady's. When did story. Joanna come to you? Because we've heard how J.P. Beaumont surfaced and his interior. What about Joanna? Well, I wrote nine books about
4: J.P. Beaumont, and I was getting sick and tired of him. And, and
3: what's, the, what's the pacing on these books? Are they coming pretty quickly? Well, Is it one per uh, year at this no, point? No, I was
4: writing about two books a year back then. And so when I told my editor, I'm, I'm just going to knock him off in the next book, my editor said, well, no, don't do that. No, I, don't
3: do something so drastic. <laughs> so
4: I wrote the, that first uh, Walker book, Hour of the Hunter. And when I went back to Beaumont again, it was fun. So then my editor said, "Well, why don't you come up with a different character so you can sort of alternate?"
3: Yeah, what and, is it about working in a series that you love? Well, it's like a
4: repertory theater. You know, you have all of these actors that you can call up and say, "Well, you're good at this. We'll bring you out for this one." And it's challenging to write a series because you have to you meet new readers wherever you meet them, and those new readers have to have enough of the backstory to feel they've had a whole book, but you don't want to put in so much of the backstory that they don't have to read the other book.
3: So it's really it's or a, that your your readers that have been with you since the beginning you are can't like bore them. don't I'll just skip through this bit or yeah. So it's it's a real
4: tightrope, but. You have you have people that you you know Bo's boss at the
3: uh, is it Ron Peters special, or, or you
4: no know, at the special homicide investigation team.
3: Why did you give it that acronym? I, th- I <laughs> thought Sounds it was hilarious.
4: hilarious. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> but uh,
4: his his boss is Harry Ignatius Ball, so his name is Harry Eyeball, and. Of course, that is always good for a joke. And Harry Eyeball does not appreciate those jokes. And people who make that joke to his face are doomed to have something bad happen to them. But the, those set pieces, like Joanna Brady's mother, Eleanor Lathrop Winfield, she, do you think she's like my mother? Exactly. But, uh, but those, having those people... To play off in the course of stories makes it fun for me
3: and the imagination, because it seems like then you would step back into this Im- this imagined place that you know so well, the streets the well the... that's so when they
4: suggested I create an al an alternate character, I knew uh, when I started writing Beaumont, he had lived in Seattle all his life, and I had lived there less than two years, so I had to learn a lot of stuff to make that work but I thought, okay, I know a lot about Arizona. I know a lot about being a single parent. I know a lot about being the last parent standing, which Eleanor was, and uh, I know a lot about the desert. Why don't I set a book there and have a female protagonist? As I mentioned earlier, I was six feet tall, in seventh grade, so I've always, I've always wondered what the world would be like if I were short, and so that's why Joanna is only five foot four. And I know things about Joanna's refrigerator that she will never suspect, because I'm way taller than she is.
3: So does that mean you're sort of like, as you try to walk in her shoes, you're sort of slouching I, down towards well, the refrigerator level, J. A. or? No, I,
4: no, I simply have to learn to look it's at the world through her point of view. And it's, it's, it's an exercise, just like writing the Beaumont books in the first person is an exercise. Well, there's the gender. I, I want to talk for a moment about the old blue line. People say, well, where do you get your ideas? Well, ideas are out there, but you have to have ideas that are worthy of attention, something that you can grab hold of. What makes the the Old Blue Line I well, story? I was at the Tucson Festival of Books last March, signing books, and a guy came up to the table. And while I was signing his book, he said, you know, Butch Dixon is a writer. Joanna Brady's husband. When are we going to see some writing from Butch Dixon? So, <laughs> I don't know. I've already written the next book, so I can't
3: tell. He seems like such a nice guy. So... Almost too good to be
4: true, J.A. No, he's, he's, he's the real deal. So I went home that night, and there was an email from one of my nephews, who had just been through a terrible breakup, saying, couldn't you knock my ex off in the next book? And I wrote back, and I said, I'm sorry, I've written the next book. I can't do that. And then I went to bed that night, and all of a sudden those two ideas came together. So The Old Blue Line is a novella.
3: Did you get up and start writing
4: that? No, I, I didn't write until, start writing until the next day. But, uh, but it's a novella. It's, it's a novella. Butch Dixon's point of view, he and I wrote it together. And it's Butch's story in the weeks leading up to when he meets Joanna Brady. And when he is accused of murdering his ex-wife, these old duffers from Sun City come riding to the rescue and i adored those guys they were so much fun to write about and it was especially fun because i only had to write 20,000 words about them i didn't have to write 100 but but they're really a
3: are a set of characters that were really fun to me but that's where the idea for that came from and and how did you know that the, that was going to be or did you know that it was going to be a novella like a shorter a vehicle for well, the storytelling
4: they had asked me to write a novella and i couldn't think of any ideas so when he, but then this one felt like
3: this is the way i could yeah, tell it in this i can tell it in a novella f- format and i did can you what would you say is important to know about pacing because you mentioned it earlier in the show like these things that you were learning on the fly like dialogue attention to dialogue how people speak the pacing well because for a suspense it seems especially important
4: in uh, in remains of innocence it's a Joanna Brady book, which starts in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. With, with Liza Ma- Matchett. With Liza Matchett. And getting her across the country in those great pieces of <laughs> of highway, when she's riding on the Underground Railway, made up of, of this network of really good truck driver guys who are helping her escape from some really bad guys, really. Uh, it was interesting to try to maintain the tension while she was riding in those trucks, counterbalancing it with what was going on on the other side of the country in Joanna Brady's life until those two pieces of the story could come together.
3: I was, I Which had, is pretty much the end.
4: Yes. I, had, I was writing Remains of Innocence with the piece I wrote after writing Second Watch. And there was such a big piece of my heart in second watch. I didn't know if I could pull it off. Can I, yeah. Is this going to be a worthy effort, or is this just going to fall flat? And I've, I've really been encouraged. I've never had people send me letters saying what they want to happen to Liza Matchett after the book. There, all these people are waving, weighing in and saying. Well, I think she should go back home to Great Barrington and run the cafe there. I think she <laughs> should stay <laughs> in Candy's cafe. I think she should stay in Bisbee and create a new life. And I oh, I or
3: think, become part of Joanna Brady's circle. So
4: I, I think it's interesting that in this book, I've been able to get people invested enough in that character to want her to come back in another in another book.
3: And why do you think that is? Like what about the character do you attracts you to Liza? <sighs> well, when she finally figured out how
4: much her father had betrayed her. And he's he you know, he's a smarmy guy. And she refuses to talk to him. She says, "No, nope, I've got nothing to say to him." And I thought Right on. But see, that's the thing. And so does Joanna Brady. <laughs> Un- until until I got to that point, and she said that, I didn't know which way it was going to go. And that, that's part of the magic of writing, of being able to walk up to the cliff on a story and then see how the cookie crumbles. And being
3: open to it.
4: Yeah. If I were an outliner, I wouldn't be
3: able to do that. (laughs) Because you'd start strong-arming it in some way.
4: Yeah, you'd try to force the issue. Uh, This way, I can watch the characters and sort of go with the flow of where they're going and and what they're going through.
3: Thank you, J.A. Jantz, for being on Living Writers today. And I can't wait to see what's next. Do you have an inkling? Uh, the next book due out will be
4: Allie Reynolds, number 10, Cold Betrayal. And before that, there will be a novella called A Last Goodbye, featuring my rescued dachshund, Bella, in a fictional guise.
3: Oh, I've seen her on your website, too. <laughs> yes. So, wait, what are you writing right now? Which character are you with now? Right now, I am
4: on a book tour. Cold Betrayal is in New York. So the next book I'm going to write will be J.P. Beaumont meets Brandon Walker from the Walker Bucks.
3: So every all of this series well, are... Ralph
4: Ames, Beau's uh, attorney, was the one who brought Brandon Walker into the cold case group, The Last Chance. And so it's perfectly reasonable that he do the
3: same thing for Beaumont. This is going to be a big dinner party, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey and what time are you at the library today 7 p.m 7 p.m and it is it the the pittsfield branch 7 p.m
4: uh, library yes. Pittsfield
3: branch 7 p.m yes. today j.a jantz so you can head over there put that in your gps um you've been listening to living writers j.a before we go i'd like to say thank you for in um second watch putting the doghouse in So thank you for that. Um, Thanks to everyone for listening out there. Thanks to Tex for engineering, for Bill, for being our studio audience. J.A., thanks for making it here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And thanks to everyone out there for listening. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
2: Island goodbye. Island goodbye. We've been too long together, my island and I. Cross the blue sea, cross the blue sea. We've been too long together, my island and me. Cobwebs and dust, cobwebs and dust. I hate to leave you, but leave you I must. Float through the sky Float through the sky We've been too long together My cobwebs and I Troubles goodbye Troubles goodbye We've been too long together My troubles and I Cross the blue sea Cross the blue sea We've been too long together, my troubles and me.
1: It's six o'clock in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And it's time for the drive-time polka party. You are stuck in the middle with me.
5: To the right, here I am